Hello, it's my great pleasure to welcome Sir David Adjay to WAF Virtual. Uh, David has had a long association um, with, with WAF in, in the sense of longevity because before we launched our first event in 2008 in Barcelona, uh, we held receptions in various cities around the world really to promote the idea, one of which was in New York City. Uh, and we wanted to get a guest speaker to say the proverbial few words uh, of, of celebration. And we knew that David was in town, so we asked him if he would uh, kindly come along and, and say those few words, which he did. Um, and then uh, years later in Amsterdam, um, we managed to, to get him to come and speak uh, at WAF. And in the intervening uh, period, of course, his, his, his architectural style was in the ascendant. But I suppose it has moved to warp speed uh, in the last three or four years. Um, knighted in 2017, enormous international acclaim uh, for the Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., uh, and just recently uh, announced as the recipient of the 2021 Royal Gold Medal in Architecture. Uh, David, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for that. I want to um, ask you, just to get our conversation started, um, about whether there was any point in your early career when you envisaged um, the huge success that you've now achieved, or whether events simply took their course and grew and grew? Gosh, um, as a young architect, um, you know, I looked around at the profession and I really wanted to see somebody like me and I didn't see that person. So sort of in the back of my mind, I always wanted to be the sort of like a sort of Einsteinian, you know, character. I wanted to be. I wanted to become the person I wanted to be. Now I didn't know what that meant, and I didn't know about awards and medals and all those things at that time. I just wanted to be an architect that was, um, you know, doing things around the world that could touch you know, different things. And so events really have sort of, you know, propelled this position. And you know, you don't imagine what your future is going to be like. And you have to sort of negotiate and be and be with it. But it is kind of, you know, my wife and myself and my team, we, we sort of look at ourselves and say, wow, this is, uh, you know, things have changed. And we're very, very grateful for that. Now, your life as a globe trotting architect, in a sense, was prefigured by your early background. Um, you're, you're British Ghanaian or Ghanaian British, but, but you were born in East Africa in, in Dar es Salaam. But spent um, the early years of, of your life, I think your, your father was in the diplomatic service, um, traveling across Africa and further afield. No, there's no, no doubt about it in a weird way. Um, this is pre-Facebook and all those tools that sort of allow people to connect, but my childhood was very peripatetic. It was, we moved from 
you know, place to place every couple of years. My father was what you call a career diplomat. Those are who had military parents or diplomatic parents will probably know this, where you just move from post to post. So East Africa, West Africa, North Africa, the Middle East were really my beginnings. Sort of moving from the global south to the global north and then eventually ending up in Africa. And, you know, um, I thought that I didn't like that sort of beginning, but clearly I, it's something, something was created because my, my work is, is obsessed with racism. And what was it that you gathered or what influenced you in the, in the travels that you undertook um, as a child? Because it was a, a pretty extraordinary background. Did you, were you conscious about the different sort of buildings in different countries that you went to? How much did you take in? Realized that it was not normal until much, much later, of course. And, but I was very struck by the, by the temperatures of different places, the humidities of different places, the ecology, the plants of different places. I, I was very, very struck by that, and definitely the architecture. As a young kid, I saw the pyramids you know, at a very young age, and, and I remember that being having an incredibly profound effect on me, and asking my father about what these things were, and, you know, having a kind of early discussion about civilization with my father. Um, you know, and then also being in the Middle East, you know, before the sort of modern era, you know, First century and this idea of um, uh, you know being in this kind of in between space between the sort of medieval world of, of Saudi Arabia and the Middle East, um, specifically Saudi Arabia and the sort of modern period, and seeing these incredible sort of rammed earth mud sort of architecture and communities um, it's still sort of prevalent and being lived in. They weren't just sort of historical sort of places where that, that were being restored or, or being preserved from being sort of destroyed. These were places that people were living in. And experiencing all that was profoundly, um, was profound for me. I'm having a little difficulty in hearing you, David. Is there any chance of moving oh. a bit closer to your microphone? Sir? Is that better? Uh, yes, it is. Thank you. Because uh, yes, um, my, my, my question arising from that is, what sort of dwellings did you yourself inhabit when you were traveling about? Was it hotels or did you tend to stay um, in different sort of uh, diplomatic or, or even, even military buildings? It was mostly, mostly diplomatic. Um, you know, the diplomats very rarely get Put in hotels, especially with their families. So my father probably would have stayed in, you know, hotels of some sort at the beginning. But when he sort of settled his family in, in the country, we were usually in in some kind of neighborhood. You know, in Kampala, I remember we were in sort of the new neighborhoods on the hills. And in Beirut, we lived downtown. And you know, in Ghana, we lived in a courtyard house newly built by Nkrumah. You know, the sort of new modernist courtyard houses with modern architecture. So there was a kind of you know, an experience of a lot of different types of ways of living in different environments. That, that, you know, now I really emotionally really draw from. And is there any sense in which 
your life as a traveling architect is a sort of replication of, of what you experienced uh, in childhood? Do you find yourself getting off planes and thinking, actually, this is what it was like when I was eight or, or whatever? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's ironic that I've sort of chosen a profession that, and, and a career that sort of makes me move around the world. And, I, you know, it's definitely chosen. So, you know, definitely way in which you're brought up usually kind of either you react against or you re or you go with but we're doing a lot of psychology here you're doing therapy on me i'm a bit concerned because i'm not very good at doing self-therapy <laughs> no there's there's an there's an interesting sense in which in which all of us have an architectural story because we were all born in a probably in a building and brought up in a building and the first school and the, these are the inevitable backdrops to all our lives. But it, it, it is striking that your uh, experience of, of different cultures um, and different countries and different temperatures uh, seems to have had a, a really positive effect on, on the architecture that, um, that, that, you have become, that you have become known for. I mean, geography, climate, hold no particular fears for you um which which i think is quite is quite unusual you had a very international upbringing and it's been helpful kind <laughs> i i have no fear of geography and climate i actually run towards towards the kind of diversity of it and, and find a lot of creative inspiration from it so yes I wanted to ask a question about the benefits and burdens of um, <clears throat> being what people call a, a, an international architect or, or a star architect, uh, and indeed working in those different cultures, um, rather than focusing as, as many architects do on kind of home territory or, or one continent rather, rather than many. Um, what, what, what are the advantages and, and what, what are the pitfalls? I mean, I think that, you know, I, I felt as though I had no choice but to, but to become much more international in my work because I simply couldn't, I didn't have the patronage of those sort of, you know, architects who have that network in their home, home countries. And I, I felt that the work that I also wanted to do I wasn't very interested in sort of commercial work in the sense of just repeating, you know, office buildings or certain things that, you know, become the staple for architecture. David, could you sit closer to the mic? Yeah, sorry. Can you hear me? Is that better? Let me just... Yeah. yeah. Um, so the staple for, um, you know, architects that, you know, build their, their patronage in a certain community. I guess I wasn't that interested in that either. So I, I had to go and find the topologies that I was interested in, in different places, um, and to find new new worlds that were interested in thinking about, you know, architecture for, you know, for their for their communities. So I, I find that I found that really exciting. So the, I mean, the advantage was that I was able to fulfill my my creative desire to work within sort of public engaged topologies without waiting for governments to make them, you know, policy. I would sort of search for where that work made sense and where I could help. 
I mean, the negative is that, you know, it has a sort of huge impact on your life. You know, you are, you are traveling a lot, so not easy on family and things like that. So I have an incredible, incredible wife who's been incredibly um, understanding, but it's not, it's not easy traveling. And, you know, in a, in a weird way, this COVID period has actually kind of recalibrated a lot of the travel that I was doing because, you know, I've been on the ground for close to eight months, which is a first in a very long time. And have, have you found, as, as many architects have, have found, that actually doing virtual meetings is not the same as a face-to-face -face meeting? And sometimes it can't be as good. But in quite a lot of cases, it can be extremely effective and save huge amounts of time and money uh, for all concerned. I actually think that um, breaking the stigma of Zoom calls and Zoom meetings has been one of the great benefits of this terrible time, is that we've now just got over that. I mean, I think in America and in the banking sector, it was quite normal, but I think in architecture and certain businesses, it was seen as, you know, you're not making an effort. I remember, you know, zooming into or dialing into competitions that I just couldn't be there for, and I, I could tell the jury looking at me thinking, oh, God, he's just, you know, can't be bothered to get on a plane to get here. And it literally was physically impossible. And that is now gone. And I think that a lot of, um, you know, I, I think there's certain critical things, especially if you're working in different places, you know, getting to feel the place and going to see the sites, et cetera, I think are irreplaceable by cameras, um, unless if you have some direct experience of that place. And, you know, general meetings by video, I think is just such a much more sustainable way of moving forward. And I've been able to run my entire sort of operation these last eight months, you know, with you know, I have three offices, one in London and one in New York, and I'm here in Accra. And, um, you know, even with the Accra clients, most of the conversations have been via, you know, Zoom. And it, it's worked perfectly. And so that, I think, is a, is a real blessing to have broken through that sort of stigma of video not being good enough. Yeah. But I, I, think, I think for business, it's, it's, been, it's, it's great. Actually, how big is the practice now um, with the with the three offices? Um, it's it's close to about 160, 70 people. And presumably, I mean, most most people would have been working from home um, for the last eight or nine months. Yes, most at the beginning, definitely everybody was sort of sent. We sort of relocated the sort of set up the, the system so that people could work from home, you know, send computers to everybody's homes. But then we worked out a way in which we could, you know, when it became more manageable, to bring half the team into the office. So we have this sort of one week in, one week off sort of rotor that we now have where, you know, we set up the offices so there was enough distance between work. And so all three offices kind of work through this rotation, and it's working really well. It's quite interesting that architects um, have all had to redesign their own offices, which suggests there might be a certain amount of works to be undertaken for the you know, 95% of offices in the world that aren't occupied um, by architects. Was, was, in any sense, was it an enjoyable exercise reworking your own office? I can't say it was. No, it was quite painful. <laughs> In the sense that, um, you know, you suddenly realize that, that you, I mean, you need, unfortunately, twice as much space for 
for half as many people, uh, and 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 that was that was quite tough, you know, because in some places you can't get more space, and others, you know, it was easy to negotiate extra space. But um, you know, it, it's it's amazing how suddenly, um, and then also the value of the space and what it does became much more structured. So that sort of rub that you got from the formality of the studio being able to look over each other's shoulders and all those sort of things sort of became much more systematized. You know, you had to have arrange a meeting and you'd sit on a table a certain way. So it has sort of slightly made more formal the business of being in an office. And I think that um, that's a negative because I think the, the joy of being in an office is, is the informality. Well, it may be that the, um, the, re the requirement for twice as much space may be the one thing that saves the commercial um, office market uh, in many yes. cities. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see. I wanted, yes. to, um, I wanted to turn to the, the sort of lines of continuity uh, in, in your work, because I think the first time we met was was at um, one of your ideas stores uh, in East London, rethinking the idea of the library so that it becomes a community resource and is not simply a, about the business of, of borrowing books. Um, and that seemed to me at the time to be heavily predicated on understanding um, who the users were rather than thinking about, you know, the library is the library is the library. And I wonder whether you see that as a kind of continuing theme in the buildings of many different scales where, where, where the public is heavily engaged. I think that you can see that as the, the thread line in my work, that it, it's, you know, I, we are interested in a track that's a work that has that uh, sort of imagining of how the public can engage with the infrastructure of the city or the infrastructure of the community how one can kind of collectively edify people through, through the tools that architecture can offer. Um, that's, that's definitely a thread line. So for me, the idea still was exciting because it wasn't just about making a classical library again and again. Um, and, you know, in, in a sense, you know, the idea of the library was already in the 20th century evolving anyway. Most people think of libraries and they're actually thinking about academic spaces academic institutions and, and you know the local library really didn't really get into its own until really post-war all over the world um, so you know it's it's interesting and that you know that these typologies and the way in which we think we know the world you know and what the real world is if I can say that are, are always kind of misaligned the idea of the sort of heroic and the reality of people's lives and so this the idea of making an architecture which is always Trying to bridge between these two two narratives is very interesting to me, and you can see that as the way in which you know the choices of the cho jobs that we're, we're taking on, where this reimagining of you know how knowledge is distributed with people, how things are re-understood, this, this is definitely a, a continuous theme. And I suppose that that um, engagement with um, with the user public. Uh, is rather different, or perhaps it isn't, um, compared with the experience of, of people for whom you've designed uh, houses. 
Do you see those as, as fundamentally different or do you see big connections? You know, I, it, I've always talked about this idea of houses and public buildings. And, and in a way, there's a little deceit in that because the houses, many of the houses that I made were not normal houses. I think it, they were very much for people who were looking for a blurring notion of, or an expanded notion of what the house could be. Either um, it was lib work in my early projects, you know, for artists, you know, the sort of dirty house and the electro house were really about artists living in their studios and trying to kind of find a way to not have to rent other spaces, but to have their family and their life in one sort of collection. Um, and, you know, so forth. And, you know, when it was for wealthy people who had huge collections, it was about this idea of a kind of museum house, you know, uh, narrative. And those were very interesting to me. And that's what really the early work was about. So for me, there was not really a difference sort of intellectually, but, but the expression of them was definitely different. The idea was that in the end, the home had a certain retreat quality that I was always trying to look for. So this idea of worlds within worlds in the homes, whereas uh, in the public buildings, worlds through other worlds um, became the kind of way in which I was sort of looking at the world. So much more porous, much more introverted uh, sort of relationship to, to reality. I loved um, one of your quotes, which I think is true, where you said, um, for rich clients, you give them grit or give them more grit. <laughs> And for poorer clients, you, you give them some gloss. And I must say, just thinking about uh, one or two of those really impressive houses um, for people who've got a bob or two, uh, but then thinking about the quite, quite shiny and, and cheerful uh, exteriors of those ideas stores. Um, th there is something in that, isn't there? Absolutely. No, it's, uh, it was said flippantly, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't flippant. It, I think that, um, you know, the kinds of clients that I enjoy who are wealthy are not interested in, you know, um, confirming their, their, their already, you know, elevated status, but are interested in pushing the art form. That's what I mean by that. And, and that the aesthetics are the result of a, a sort of intellectual process rather than than just being about you know the best material and the highest quality and, and all those things which you know quickly put a certain kind of hierarchy in things. So I, I tend to not like those kinds of jobs. I prefer jobs where that's not the issue. Um, and you know I think that with people who you know hard earned money want to kind of do things or you know want to be in the world, um, you know I think it's tough enough. <laughs> so. I'm a little bit, you know, it's a little bit simple, slightly, and a bit romantic, but I, I love that romance, you know, that, you know, it's, you know, I just love the, the idea that that young kid who maybe, you know, doesn't have a father, doesn't have a place at home to work at, can go to the idea store and feels that it's like the most fabulous place that he's, you know, getting to work in every day because it's around the corner from his house, you know, it's that, that, I love things like that. Now, when you, when you came to London, you, your your study of architecture took place at two um, fairly gritty physical establishments. First, the Royal College of Art, um, and then South Bank University, or, 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 or the other way around. In in both those cases, I've always been struck about those areas that, apart from um, 
the, the greenness of Kensington Gardens, um, how monochromatic they are. And I wonder when, when you came to London, did you feel that you kind of lost sight of um, a world of technicolor and, and come to the, the, the world of gray? <laughs> um, I, I think that light has a profound effect, yeah. Uh, I, I think that, you know, there's a sort of subtlety um, that you sort of feel and see light and how it affects everything. You know, I just think, you just look at the way people dress in, the, in, in Europe versus the way people dress in warmer climates and it tells you everything. Um, there's a kind of, you know, there's a much more sensitivity to any amount of light that appears and, 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 and that is enjoyed nurtured but it's like in it's 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 in small bits and i guess yeah for me i knowing both worlds i'm always interested in the way in which you know i love Barragan's term the, the way in which you draw with light that that light or the kind of desire for light is part of the expression of the way in which you make the architecture i really love but it's notable that um a varied and vibrant color palette has, has been part of your work, uh, not in the sense of making gaudy buildings, because th that's far from being the case. But I'm just thinking about sort of the way that you've used color and texture uh, in your buildings, but also in other parts of your design work. I mean, you know, fabrics and, and furniture and, and clothing. Is, is, the, is your use of color kind of based on just sophisticated color theory, or is it based on all those influences that, that uh, were, were part of your growing up? I think color for me is, is much more intuitive. It's not, a, it's not an intellectual application. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of atmospheric agent, and it's really about evoking certain energies in the building. And that's to do with the experience of those places and then trying to use color as a kind of, as a frequency to evoke a certain, certain, certain resonance in the work. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sort of interested in that Corbusian sort of application of color as a kind of artist's sort of system. Uh, I'm more interested in it as a kind of an evocator of a kind of sensation of different geographies or different, rather different uh, light frequencies, different sensations of light. I wonder what the, um, the relationship between your color palette and what we might call your sort of textural palette. I mean, I was struck that the, 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 the book about some of your earlier works is sort of, I think, a, a, the first volume of An Earth Complete. Um, it's a it's a black and white cover, but actually, when you touch the cover, um, there's this rather subtle texture which you don't in, immediately see just by looking at it. I was going to show it on the screen now, but it won't make the point. The point is that somebody once said, "Touch has a memory," and I always get the feeling in your buildings that there are sort of elements to it that uh, the kind of almost need the the, the, the physical engagement. Um, even though we're not allowed, we're trying to avoid that sort of thing in the in the COVID condition. Uh, but in general, there's a there's this feeling almost of wanting a physical engagement with the thing you're in and the thing itself. 
Absolutely. No, I mean, something that was from day one fascination was the, for me, the ability to, um, to almost as it were, use texture as a way to break up light, but also to reveal the nuance of form, um, uh, the detail of form. And, you know, for me, it wasn't about making ornament, but it was about the richness in which light can reveal um, much more complex issues rather than sheer surface. Um, so this, this, this has become, this is a big theme in the work and it's something that I'm, whenever I'm working with materials, it's a constant investigation. How do we not only just reflect light with materiality, but how do we break up light? How do we draw it down? How does it sort of trickle, you know, uh, across the surface of a building? And, and for me, that is to do with that sort of having the haptic senses you know, also when you go to a building, see more than what you can see in an image. Sometimes in my projects, it's very hard with photography to understand what's fully going on because there are effects that are happening to do with the way in which light hits the material that you just have to experience. You know, and I always have, you know, people say, I went and I finally got what you were trying to do. I didn't see it in the pictures. And, you know, for me, that is, you know, my, the architecture is much more dynamic. It's not a static set of sort of images and perceptions. And that, that this idea of texture guiding you um, as much as tonality, color, um, is very, very critical the way, in the way in which I... I think it's, for me, a tool that the architect uses to draw, to focus, or to pull away. You know, it's almost like a sort of... It's like a focusing lens. It brings things into, into clarity or it, or it takes things away. And, and I'm very, very interested in I think that's, that, that's very true of your African-American history building in Washington, um, which I'd like to ask you about. But before that, uh, when did your love affair, if love affair it be, uh, begin with the USA? Gosh, I think it started when I won the competition for the um, Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver, Colorado. That was a sort of big competition for, for you know, and a, a selection of sort of then young architects were sort of in this, you know, this hot house, and we went to Denver. We all presented to the community, and then we sort of, you know, did a, you know, did, did the competition and, and did a sort of pitch to the board. And um, when I won that, I was like, wow, this is very different. Um, you know, I'd never presented to a community first before presenting to the people that were inviting you to, to you know, to present the project. This was in 2003, if you remember. This is a long time ago. Um, and there's a lot of like community engagement now that people you know, use. But this, they, they were out there. And I, and I found that refreshing. And then when we, when we um, started working on the projects, I realized that there was a, there's a way in which um, there was a kind of openness to, the, to, the, to the, the different references that the project would bring, which I found very, very rich too. So I think it really sort of started there. And then, you know, um, we started getting more work in other places. We got houses and um, other, other projects. And then, you know, sort of moving to 2008, um, the competition for the National Museum of African American History and Culture happened. And, you know, um, we, you know, we did that competition with everything in the office. And then when we won in 2009, early 2009, we, you know, we were, it was thrilling. So in a way, that, that's when the full-blown sort of love affair 
you know, came into its own, if I could say that, if, if, if that's what we were talking about. And then, you know, it, it took nine years to build that building, you know, and then in that time, you know, we, you know, I was very consumed with that building. It was such a dramatic scale change for me and detail change and also working with a large consultancy group, you know, there were 40 consultants that we were coordinating and leading. Local architects and partners who built on the mall to allow us to not, you know, not make mistakes. So you know, we were the young young kids, kind of accelerating, you know, and learning how to make this kind of building, you know, through a sort of very complex process. Did, so I didn't do did, did much you, during that time, but the few you, projects did come, and they were very important. Um, it just helped with the development libraries, you know, etc. In Washington, were done then because I was in Washington and. These competitions came about, so it made sense to do them, and they became training, you know, spaces for certain ideas that I was working on, actually on the museum, and and, and just generally thinking about. It became little experiments. And tell us for the, for those people who don't know um, how this, how did you get, how did you come to meet um, Barack Obama, and uh, how did that relationship develop? Well, the president, um, the president is an extraordinary man who's very interested in many things. He's a sort of polyphonous thinker and is very interested in architecture. And, you know, the, the site for the museum, there are two things. One, it's outside the Lincoln bedroom. You know, outside of the Lincoln bedroom, you can see this, this building. And so it's right outside the bedroom of the White House. So you can't miss it. And two, um, he was the person that was authorizing for the federal funds to pay for the, you know, the building was half raised in the, by the trustees and, and the public, and the other half was paid for by the government. It's a private sort of public partnership. And so um, he took a great interest in it, and I was, you know, asked to go make a presentation to him. Um, and I think that that was when we sort of, you know, a certain relationship started. It's not in any and you've stayed in touch best friend or anything but touch. yeah but he was very generous to me and very kind and you know invited me to a state dinner and and, and several other things and you know connected since then you know that and is the um african-american museum i mean i'm assuming you think that's the most significant building that you've done to date but i wonder if if you might like to say a bit about it and what it meant for the office and things that you had to do which were perhaps different or explorations you had to make which, which went deeper than with other projects no i think that um that project in terms of built work is without doubt um, probably the most significant project that i've done to date and you know it, it really, you know, we built the, the Moscow School of Business and Management, but that was um, an education building, a very important building. Scale-wise, it was bigger, but we didn't have as much control. We controlled the exterior and key moments, and then the interiors were done by other people, whereas with the, the museum, we controlled everything apart from, you know, we didn't do the curatorial content done by the museum. But we worked with the teams to really, you know, develop the aesthetic of, of this building very completely. And I think that, that its position also on the National Mall, um, very charged site, is undoubtedly one of the most important global sites in the world in terms of architecture and space, suddenly threw me into the, into the spotlight. Um, because maybe sometimes that kind of commission comes at the end of your career or at a very sort of late stage. 
And so I think having the opportunity as a young architect to work on that uh, stage um, allowed a certain visibility of the office, which you know, has not changed since. I mean, it's sort of been the fuel that's propelled the, the office and allowed the office to be able to, you know, that experience gained has allowed us to be able to do the work that we're doing now on the National Cathedral, the Abrahamic House in Abu Dhabi, or the, or the new Edo Museum Princeton, what, the things that we're working on now, I think that in a way that project accelerated us into a position where we were not sort of still doing houses and offices and, and things like that, trying to kind of work our way up, but we moved straight into a building cultural infrastructure on the global stage. And you know, that, that, you know, and working for 10 years on a building is not, is a very trying thing. So for that period, I wasn't building lots of, you know, there, weren't, there wasn't that much production coming out because it was really about that. So it's a very different kind of trajectory uh, to, to the traditional trajectory. But that opportunity allowed a certain jumping um, of the usual sort of practices. But we gained experiences that most firms don't have uh, in the ability to negotiate and build these kinds of buildings. And, and that is bearing fruits now around the world. So um, that building and you know, is, is, was so profoundly important in understanding to, how to negotiate politics, you know, civic issues, uh, working on sort of very charged political sites, um, and you know, really understanding how these things work and how, as an architect, one can have agency to create something. You know, I always say that the architect stands between the public and and the client. You know, trying to make something that is about architecture, and what we mean by that is that it's about something that goes beyond either either side. You know, that is a kind of an, an idea about the civilization we're in and, and the things that we want to see in the world and how we want to imagine the world. Uh, that, is, that is something that I've really, you know, that experience really taught me and then has been invaluable in the work that I'm doing now. You know, the work, a lot of the work now, you know, involves governments and, you know, very charged sites. Uh, you know, we have quite a lot of that work on our portfolio and, and I think that experience, we could never be doing this work if it wasn't for that incredible and did, he, did your architectural education prepare you for this, would you say? Because you, you've spoken about education and, and things that might be improved or could be better done. And I wonder if, if looking back, you think that actually, of course, there's no substitute for doing a major building. A major building is a major building. Um, but what was it about your own education that prepared you, do you think? Or in the end, have you learned more since you left school? Yeah, I think that at school I was always rejecting the sort of apologies that were being thrown thrown at us as much as I mean I, I went through some of them, but you know, for instance, for my degree, I I did a project which was about disability, um, you know, in in the late sort of eighties, early uh, early nineties, which was really about this tackling in inequality in the, in the in the built environment, and that was my degree project, which I won, um, you know, a sort of the world sort of bronze medal for. And in my diploma project, I came back to that idea, but I wanted to tackle inequality and disability in the workplace. So I did it for my degree in the sort of you know in the private sector, how disabled people were integrated into our societies and how their homes. Would, would be integrated in the urban context, and then I wanted to do, look at that in the built environment. So these, this, 
these two, and they were very different to everybody else that was kind of working, you know, doing the, the kind of things that were quite trendy at the time. But I was, it came through personal experiences. One, my youngest brother is mentally and physically handicapped, so I've grown up with disability, and I was horrified about the way in which the built environment really had no sort of uh, reflection of, you know, this vast amount of people that just are not included in the discourse of accessibility. Now it's very normal, but then it was completely, as you know, Paul, it was, uh, was not even uh, something that was really mainstream. And I think that in, in, from that you can see the trajectory that the interest in, um, you know, social justice, environmental justice, you know, in the inequality of structures, the sort of multiplicity of the narrative of architecture being more than just singular, um, not just Western, but actually this idea of multiple centers of excellence and being able to understand those centers of excellence and their trajectories and how that really contributes to the body of architecture with a big A. Um, are, these are all the things that I'm very passionate about. And I think that, you know, I, in a way, the education that I had create, allowed me to create a resistance. And I sort of thank my education for that. In a way, I don't think it taught me, you know, how to do what I'm doing now, but it gave me an opportunity to test myself against it. And, um, and, it, and it, you know, it's, it was celebrated for its difference at that time. And, um, and now it's, I think it's being celebrated in the work of the office. I remember you talking a bit about this at the um, Aga Khan uh, Awards um, when, when we were out in, in Lisbon, and I think you were, you were on the jury that year, may, may still be a, a juror. And that struck me as a, a kind of wonderful um, cross-cultural uh, award scheme, which although um, based on um, you know, the Aga Khan's uh, uh, branch of Islam, nevertheless, is pretty embracing of um, of all sorts of cultures and all sorts of all sorts of people. Seemed to me to be an exemplary program. Couldn't agree more. I'm I'm on the master jury um, of the Aga Khan, and the reason I'm on it is because I really believe that that is the model of a of a sort of you know forward looking architectural award scheme, one that really understands the diversity of the built environment around the world and, and really tries to acknowledge the excellence of that. I think that the Aga Khan Award is probably one of the most, for me, prestigious awards in the world um, because it deals with that multiplicity of knowledge and it doesn't kind of come from one trajectory. Um, and, and that's very powerful, even though it is, you know, as you said, you know, it's an Islam, you know, which is about Muslim, the Muslim world. But it's, it's embrace, I think, is a great model um, and a prototype for I think, what is needed. I've always been interested in that, um, interested in, that in the judging process because um, technical experts go and look at all the entries um, and then provide reports to the master jury. And you deliberate on the reports that you've read and no doubt possibly films, but you, you don't visit the buildings themselves. But actually the citations and the consideration of um, the architectural ideas seem very thorough. And I wonder whether, in a, in a way, not visiting the building uh, allows you a certain kind of intellectual detachment, which might not exist if you went there and fell in love with, you know, the people or the guide or the temperature or the color palette or whatever it, whatever it might be. 
I, I think that there's something in that. I, I love the technical reports. I, when I first encountered the, the way in which that was done, you know, you, you realize that th there was a way in which you could absolutely look at the most grand and expensive building and the most modest looking building, but using a set of sort of criteria that really go across them, you, you're able to kind of make an assessment on the value and the impact um, of these things. Um, and I think that the technical report you know, and having a kind of very smart engineer or architect or, or environmental science person sort of do a study really cuts through the conjecture and the kind of ability in which you then can then look at this project coldly. And I think there is something about, you know, the problem is a lot of competition juries happen with people just looking at pictures or then relying on people who've been to those buildings to kind of give, give a certain read. Um, and I think that this, the, the, what the Agatan does is, is very powerful. But it requires resources and a sort of infrastructure and a commitment to the idea of judging, which lays down this fundamental sort of baseline as a requirement to understanding what it is that you're looking at and why it's good beyond taste and you know, your own preference. Now, you've always been a great, um, been a great enthusiast for the, enthusiast. the potential uh, of architecture to improve lives or in some cases transform lives and and i wonder um as you sort of enter maturity in in that great longevity that the architects tend to have what still excites you about this subject what do you still love about architecture no i think that's probably one of the reasons i moved to the continent i think this sort of next act is you know, I wanted to, I think that for me, um, I wanted to see architecture profoundly affecting society. And I wanted to work within a context that, that was emerging, not one that has emerged. Um, and sort of negotiating how to kind of move forward or how to be best. I wanted to be in a context and see if I can contribute to that. So really moving back to the continent was really critical move and, and it's incredibly exhilarating and exciting, you know, to have both now. The, uh, you know, I have the kind of, sort of offices in the West which are doing sort of work which is negotiating how to kind of make sense of the conditions that exist for those cities. And then I'm working in, 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 in the continent which is emerging and imagining its future and imagining what that future can be. And I think that's reignited my love for the subject. I think that I was starting to, you know, think that I wasn't that, you know, excited by just continually trying to just um, innovate only a certain sense of what architecture can be within a certain community. But this, this idea of, you know, looking at it in different ways is, for me, just completely, you know, um, energized me in really powerful ways. You know, the work that I'm interested in and the work that I'm doing now, I'm very, very excited about and as much as I was when I left school. I think that's a very nice moment on, on which to uh, bring this conversation to a close. It's been hugely uh, enjoyable. Um, and we didn't have time to discuss it, but there was a, I know that you visited 54 African cities um, photographing them and drawing influences from them. And I think uh, in, in your world, you seem to have distilled your multiple experiences from across the world uh, and managed to find a, a voice 
which far from being the clamor of all those different uh, different influences is a sort of distillation um, and I, that's why I think um, that you're the very worthy winner of next year's Royal Gold Medal. So, Sir David Ajay, thank you very much for your time today and uh, congratulations. Thank you, Paul. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you.